Every week, the Orange Fizz team breaks down the five most pressing questions about Syracuse athletics. Holy cow, what a big-time defensive play! No holds barred. I paid the fool. It's the Fizz Five. Five! Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Fizz 5. Carter Bainbridge along with Cam is there with you on this Thursday afternoon covering the five most important topics in Syracuse sports right now. And we're not talking about the JMA Wireless Dome. Not this time. Of course, that's big news, but there are some more pressing issues at hand concerning the teams that actually play inside that building and Cam, you're with me today to talk about all this news, all this stuff. How are you feeling today? I'm doing great. You'd think because it's summertime, or at least we're nearing into it, that the Syracuse sports and news that surrounds it is dying down, but it's the furthest thing from it, right? Right. Sports might be struggling at Syracuse, but the one thing that the university always does so well is it's still a, a big market, you know, the, the teams are still big market, right? You still consider Syracuse as, as a, a top team in terms of whether there's media or the news that surrounds it. So even though we're getting into summertime, very excited that we still have a lot to talk about. That is for sure. Couldn't agree more. And with that said, let's jump right into our first topic of the day. Number one. So topic number one, Cam, on this Thursday is actually something that happened a week ago today, and that was the Syracuse women's lacrosse NCAA tournament game that happened back on the 19th of this month, and it was a game that did not go well. It ended the season for Kayla Trainer and company. Northwestern 15, Syracuse 4, your final score. So Cam, as a guy who was around the women's lacrosse program all year long, and called some of that team's games. What what went wrong in that matchup against the Wildcats, a rematch of last year's tournament? Yeah, I mean, Syracuse ran into a brick wall. And you'd think, oh, it's the brick wall of Northwestern. It was actually the brick wall that they'd been building against themselves the entire year, whether it was injuries or picking up inconsistencies that weren't, uh, you know, weren't a factor at the beginning of the season and really picked up as the season went on because as injuries started to pile up and Syracuse had to get used to playing without Megan Carney and then used to playing with Megan Carney, Sarah Cockrell went down, right? Uh, Emma Tyrell went down, Emma Ward at the beginning uh, in the preseason, the wall just started to build higher and higher and higher. And it always seemed like Syracuse would find some kind of, uh, some kind of hole, something through that wall that they were able to get through because of the talent that they exuded. Unfortunately, you run into a team like Northwestern, who you lost to earlier in the season, probably should have won that game. I think they were up three goals with a couple minutes left, uh, ended up losing in overtime. It's a team that just it, it dug its own grave. And unfortunately for Syracuse, it didn't have to be that way, but just things happen. And that's what happened last season. But SU was able to get around that through its talent this season the talent just was so good in the sport of women's lacrosse I think unlike any other season that Syracuse just ran into its own wall right the injuries started to pile up and what did that lead to well it led to Megan Carney Emily Harris Chuck and Megan Tyrell having to play one-on-one -on -one ball and that's an inconsistency 
that or it was a consistency and became an inconsistency because it didn't work toward the end of the season. You're playing teams like Louisville and Pittsburgh. You can beat unranked teams in that regard and with that theme going on, but you can't beat ranked teams and it showed against Northwestern. So it was one-on-one play because you got to play without the, the players that really put you in the position to be number three in the country because they got injured. So as much as I want to say that it was Northwestern that built the wall up and Syracuse just kind of ran into it and couldn't, couldn't find a way around it, it was Syracuse the entire season building up these it just it almost seemed like obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And finally, Syracuse met its maker four goals, all unassisted. Megan Tyrell had a hat trick, I'm pretty sure, because toward the end of the season, Syracuse was just relying on her going one on one. So as much as I want to harp on this game, Zach, Kimber Howard, this, this or that, the goaltending wasn't good enough. Caitlin Mashevsky wasn't good enough at the draw control circle. I think it was just uh, the entire season and a culmination of so many things going wrong for this team. And finally, Syracuse met its maker in the quarterfinal. I wouldn't look at this season and say it's a disappointment because this SU team did as much as they could, only lost to North Carolina by two without some of their best players. Without a midfield in general, only lost to Boston College by two in the final game of the season. Made it to the quarterfinals. Still uh, became a you know still were a top five team in the country. Yes, lost to Virginia in the ACC tournament, but that's something. It's almost like a fluke. So you just got to look at next season and say if you go without the injuries and you don't build up a wall against yourself and be, make yourself your own enemy all of a sudden this is a final four team. So just think this team's a few years away in terms of not digging itself into its own grave. Yeah. You talked about the, the offensive production in this game and you were right when you said that Megan Tyrell had a hat trick, but the problem was that every other player on the Syracuse team had one goal combined, including zero from uh, Megan Carney and Emily Harris, Chuck. So your usual scorers, no matter how banged up this team was, aren't producing. In, in the key games. And I think Syracuse, this team in particular, you look at their schedule, they pulled off a lot of close wins against ranked teams, which is obviously a good thing. And it shows that Kayla trainer was obviously cooking up some stuff on that sideline and, and the players were buying it and executing it when the time came, but clutch performance is, is pretty cruel. Sometimes it can catch up to you. And if Syracuse had lost some of those games, maybe we wouldn't have gone in with such high expectations because coming into this tournament with the injuries, I think Syracuse got turned into a team that couldn't beat you anyway. I think they could only win through their main scorers with a lot of that hero ball that you talked about. It was going to take some really vintage performances from their main scorers to, to topple these, these teams that are deep and can beat you anyway. So Syracuse, when it was reduced in its capacity to play different ways, I think it was set up against a team like Northwestern to lose. So it's a painful end for what was a bright spot in a, in a pretty painful year of Syracuse athletics. Kayla Trainer, first year on the job, finishes 15 and six in year number one at the helm of SU Women's Lacks. But we'll stick with lacrosse as we move on to topic number two. Number two. All right, Cam, next order of business is Syracuse men's lacrosse, and that is the action that that team has been going through in the arena of the transfer portal. So they've had some pieces go away from the team and leave, and they've also brought a couple in. So just a quick recap, Cam, the departures from the Syracuse team, 
Tucker Dordovic, obviously the main one, Matteo Corsi, Mikey Berkman, additions, Cole Kirst from Lehigh, the attackman, and uh, Denver attackman or MIDI, depending on how Syracuse wants to use them. Alex Simmons, both those guys, grad transfers. Um, Kirst with 81 points in his career at Lehigh, Simmons with 129. So these guys can score. But what's your immediate reaction to how Syracuse has uh, been shaped through the transfer portal? I mean, I think it's more about the departures rather than the additions. And I want to start with that. Tucker Dordovic going to Georgetown is the worst thing possible for Syracuse. Ever since Dordovic left, I think everyone knew this guy wants to, in his final year of eligibility, his sixth year of college lacrosse, wants to vie for a national championship. So many people thought a Maryland, a Georgetown, maybe one of the Ivies. And you look at him going to Georgetown along with every other North Carolina player possible. And this Georgetown team is, is with the idea that they just lost to Delaware, right? So you have that in the back of your mind as the number two seed. This team has been elevated to a point that I think Maryland's the only one that can contend with Georgetown if they're able to utilize the pieces and put them in the roles that they work best in. The Dordovic thing hurt. Matteo Corsi leaving made zero sense to me. I know I've, I've talked a bit with, with uh, another Fizz staffer, John Eads, who actually played against Matteo Corsi in high school. And he, I think he's going to go talk with him, just ask him, you know, what's up, what's going on. And he might have more insight on that if, if Matteo ever wants to share. But this is a guy that was a freshman that started a majority of games because the midfield was so depleted. Because you move Tucker Dordovic to attack – all of a sudden, all you have is Brendan Curry because you don't have Dordovic and Trimboli's gone in the PLL. So with Dordovic gone and Matteo Corsi gone, the Mikey Berkman thing doesn't worry me as much because I think the Joe, Joey Spolina will take his spot and uh, alongside him, a guy like Jackson Burt Whistle really showed his prowess. So I'm not too worried about the Mikey Berkman role. I, I think that was more of a catch and shoot type of guy. It really didn't hurt this program. But Mateo Corsi leaving as a freshman hurts because he might not have been happy with the program. Why would a freshman who knows he might get starting minutes, why would he leave? And then Tucker Dordovic, that takes, uh, takes a really integral part of this team and throws it out the window. In terms of the additions, I love it. And I also think it says Gary Gates not done. These aren't the only two players that are going to join Syracuse men's lacrosse, which makes me, as someone that watches the team and follows the team, extremely happy for the future. I love that, that curse kid is someone who can play the attack. And also, if you need it, he's a Dodger, right? It's someone that ha has proven himself at Lehigh enough that he can be a Dodger and you can put him at midfield as well. I think that's what Syracuse will do. So you almost have a Tucker Dordovic-like player, obviously not as talented. And then Alex Simmons, I, I love that move. A guy that just knows how to score in a multitude of ways. Not just an attackman that vies for the net, but that can also get his teammates involved. He did it so much at Denver. So the fact that you add a guy in curse that can really be that X-man for you and be that offensive-oriented player, and then a guy in Simmons that just knows how to score in a multitude of ways, Happy with where the program's going, but more excited and more elated that I think this means more transfers are coming in. And one thing it does for sure is that it marks pretty much the definite end of the era of Syracuse lacrosse that you and I, Cam, have witnessed since we came to Syracuse. So we're both about to be seniors at SU, as hard as that is to believe. But over the past three years, we've been watching 
Tucker Dordovic, you know, and we saw other guys like Jamie Tromboli and Brendan Curry has been here. You hear the same names over and over and over again. I think that Gary Gate coming in was the start of the new chapter, but now that Dordovic is gone, which I agree was, was a pretty painful loss, especially as it goes to Georgetown. And then Matteo Corsi was also kind of a head scratcher. But on the flip side, you're making room for some of the freshmen to come in. You're, you're making room for some guys who can provide a fresh set of eyes, fresh set of legs in Kirst and Simmons, who didn't have to go through the disappointment of 2020 when things were canceled, didn't have to go through the pain of 2021 when that team pretty much thought they knew everything and then suffered through a year that none of them are ever going to forget for pretty bad reasons. So ultimately there's some turnover going on within the team, but we'll have to wait and see the jury's out on whether or not these guys can come in and perform the way they have at their respective schools. It is fresh blood one way or another, but as we turn our eyes towards the summer cam, we're going to be keeping our eyes on football and basketball recruiting. And that takes us neatly into topic number three. Number three. All right, Cam, next up on the menu is a recent addition to Syracuse football. So Dino Babers with a big get here, pretty decently sized fish in quarterback Carlos Del Rio Wilson, a class of 21 recruit, former four-star quarterback now coming to Syracuse from Florida via transfer, which he announced his intention to do back in April. He registered the last season with the Gators under Dan Mullen, who was eventually fired, uh, and received plenty of pretty impressive offers when he was a high schooler. SEC schools like Kentucky, Ole Miss, Tennessee, ACC rivals of Syracuse like Florida State, Virginia Tech, NC State, put up big numbers at his two high schools he went to, 50 passing touchdowns, 13 rushing touchdowns in his career. This guy's a dual threat. He can play. But my question for you, Cam, is does he shake up Syracuse's quarterback room at all? Can I do something that I've never done before on Fist Please Five? do. Please do. I'm going to keep it short and sweet, which I never do. Not at all. This guy is just another Dan Valari. Just someone that wants to come to Syracuse and rival Garrett Schrader for the future quarterback position. Garrett Schrader is the quarterback. He can throw the ball at a higher proficiency than Dan Valari and this this uh, well you said Carlos Del Rio, Del Rio Wilson. Wilson. It, it's a mouthful. It really is. I'm very curious to know how that's going to fit on the back of the jersey. <laughs> that's all I'm curious about uh, with this kid. He redshirted. He has what four, maybe five years of eligibility. I don't know how COVID and redshirt, blah blah blah, all that. I think it's four. This is a future move for him in a system that has shown that rushing quarterbacks are key because that's why Garrett Schrader took the spot over Tommy DeVito and why Schrader will be the future quarterback for years to come. It's a future move. It does not shake up this quarterback room at all. Right. And I think I I would agree with you. And I, I think especially not because obviously Del Rio Wilson lack of experience versus Tommy DeVito last year, who was experienced, but unseated, Obviously, very different situations, but there were calls last year to put Tommy DeVito into games when Garrett Schrader struggled, which at times he did, right? He had some pretty low efficiency games. Liberty comes to mind. NC State comes to mind. He had a couple of performances where you really thought, "Ah, I don't know, you know, this is just not quite sure about, you know, we kind of know his limitations now. That was 
the thing with Schrader. But I think everybody left that season, even though they lost the final game against Pitt to, to blow their chance at a bowl, that Schrader could play. He had clearly established himself as a D1 starter and that he was going to be the starter going into next year. Now, Dan Valari came in uh, and it excited, briefly excited our two uh, Michigan guys on the fizz, that being Ian Unsworth and John Eads, who I think called him what Taysom Hill, Taysom Hill 2.0 or something like that. Just yeah, little, ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> little, little gadget player. And, and of course uh, on brand for uh, our, our, our uh, Michigan fan, John Eads, but and then in the spring game as well, just to build off of that, it was Justin Lampson who, who put up a really good performance. Uh, they got some, some praise and attention playing uh, uh, just against a, the split squad. Of course, you know, there's not a lot you could take away from that. But anyway, you know, Del Rio Wilson, I agree with you. He's, he's definitely got just a, just a mess of eligibility left. Nobody really knows who's in what year anymore with COVID, right? Because <laughs> yeah. de- depending on the athletic department, there's some guys who are in the same grade two years in a row. They Some of them slap a red shirt on it. Are we seniors um, next year? At I'm this not point, sure. We I might think, have three more years. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. Not even for a spring sport either. Of course, I do think it was the right move to give guys an extra year, but it has complicated things for the time being. We're still not kind of out of that forest yet of, uh, of confusing years, but at the end of the day, you know, I don't, I don't dislike the move of getting him at all. I think there, there's going to be unfair questions and stories put out that disparage Schrader maybe when he doesn't play well this year, that's, that's what's going to happen. Neither of us think that Del Rio Wilson should play right away, but there are going to be people out there who do not just fans, but there might be some media members as well who, who make the call for him. And I think that's a little bit, a little bit preemptive, right? Of course, you know, Schrader may go out there and play great every single game, but he's a run first quarterback. And I think that Del Rio Wilson is going to have to wait his turn. Certainly so, but I think he's definitely an intriguing guy to have on the team. I'm more interested to see what he can do than Valari. I'm more interested to see what he can do than Lampson. So I think you've got a little bit of a battle there to see who's going to be QB two and three, and Del Rio Wilson's not about to be cut from the team, but he's a four-star recruit. He ended up in an SEC school that, by the way, had a tremendously messy season last year with its head coach, Dan Mullen, who humiliated himself and put his foot in his mouth routinely in press conferences and had certainly lost the team. So it's not like Del Rio Wilson is just a bad player who's fleeing to, you know, find playing time. He's a good player. You know, I think he, he deserves the accolades he's had. And you're going to see, you know, some talent fleeing programs like that that are in some dysfunction. And I think Syracuse was lucky to uh, to snag a player like that. But I, I agree. I, it's a ahead. future move. Do you agree? I like it's a yeah, no, I, that's move. that's the uh, that's that's the essence of this. Right? right. So that's just wanting to share some extra thoughts on him. You kept it short and sweet, but I picked up a little bit of the slack there. Cam. <laughs> I gave, gave a little bit more. Uh, of an extensive answer on Del Rio Wilson, who, you know, Syracuse fans will have to wait and see for a couple Good of years build. to see w- hey, what he does for this program. He's well built for for a quarterback of that might need to really retool his arm and retool his throwing motion, whatever it may be, and doesn't really have to focus that much on his rushing ability because it's there. It's a good move. You can't have too many quarterbacks. I think every college program has learned that you can always build up talent. That Syracuse certainly has a lot of them now, but that's going to wrap up topic number three. Let's move on ahead to our fourth subject of the day. 
number four. All right, Cam, fourth order of business is about Syracuse men's basketball. Jim Beheim's squad is obviously a long way away from its opener in the fall, but we're about to get into AAU ball, you know, watching season and getting into class of 23 commitments. I mean, it just never ends around here with uh, this, the men's squad, of course. And uh, we've, uh, we've been witness to a recent quote unquote fizz feud on our site, at least a little bit between these two, uh, two philosophies, I should say, concerning Syracuse men's basketball's non-conference schedule. So here are the facts, non-conference games so far, Cam, scheduled against Lehigh, which making up one of last year that was canceled because of COVID. Bryant, who Syracuse has played before, Oakland, and Colgate. Those are four that we know right now. And I think you mentioned earlier that there are a couple in a tournament they're playing like Richmond. And correct me if I'm wrong in just a moment. But two of our writers have written articles sharing their opinions on this subject. One of them, Ethan Frank, said non-conference schedule should be easier. Let the new class and younger team make mistakes against these softer opponents. Let them do that instead of against UNC or Virginia. It's the best chance to get 1,000 wins for Jim Beheim. Those are his points boiled down. Obviously, not trying to paraphrase him, but there you have it. On the other side, Liam Griffin, our most recent Fizz writer, disagrees with this point, wrote his perspective before uh, Ethan did, but still worth mentioning that Liam says big recruits who come into Syracuse want to see them play against competition. It's a plus from a marketing perspective as you try to build up the, the, uh, the orange brand under Bayheim. Last year, in his opinion, soft games against the Ivy League did not adequately prepare the Orange for their immediate conference start, where they got off to a bad start, lost a couple games in a row. You end up one game under 500. You know, you kind of see it both ways, Cam. You don't have to side with either one of these guys, but I'm curious to know your opinion on this matter. I'm siding with Ethan. I'll side. I'm not, I'm not trying to shy away. From, I'm, I'll take a side. I'm siding with Ethan on this one. And I'm not saying Liam is wrong because if you look at last season, the, the fact that Syracuse this year is going to get a bunch of 18-year-olds playing in their first college season, some of them are going to start for the first ever time at the college level. While this past season, Syracuse got a bunch of veterans, right? A Cole Swider. Uh, a Samir Torrance, guys that might not have played as much as, uh, at, you know, as much as they wanted at their previous programs, but have played the collegiate game before. And the non-conference schedule was not hard for Syracuse. It, those games have been, have been doled out, right? The, the Oakland, the Lehigh, the Bryant. Well, Syracuse this past year had Colgate, who I don't think many expected to put up a hundred on the orange and the games before that, I correct me if I'm wrong, those teams weren't good. So it's not like La Syracuse, Lafayette and Drexel. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not like Syracuse put forward a strong uh, schedule or maybe even uh, an extremely weak one. It was very mid. Their schedule was right in the middle between the two of being weak and being strong. I don't think it really matters, but I'm siding with Ethan because these guys are younger. I was disappointed that this veteran type group couldn't beat a Colgate, right? And that almost parlayed into the fact that they couldn't beat a VCU, a more experienced team. And yes, they played a Villanova and a Georgetown. So that makes it really tough. But in terms of a non-conference schedule, it, every non-conference schedule is going to be in the middle. Right? You're not Duke playing Chattanooga 
you're going to get a couple poor matchups and then you're going to get a couple that are a little tougher, maybe the big 10 ACC challenge, the tournaments, but in terms of a bunch of 18 year olds, 17 and 18 year olds coming to the collegiate game. I'm siding with Ethan last year's team probably needed a punch in the gut to play as well as they did in ACC play, but still not get the results. This is a team that is built up with a bunch of youngsters and then it's Joe Girard and Jesse Edwards. So I'm siding with Ethan on this one in terms of should Syracuse uh, put forward a weak non-conference schedule. I think they always should. There's nothing wrong with doing that because you're playing in probably one of the best conferences in all of college basketball. I know big 10 fans might want to uh, might want to bog me down on that one, but no, I, I'd fully, I'm confident in saying that I agree with Ethan because I think the youngsters need to learn how to play a Lehigh, a Bryant with Mr. Doug Eddard himself, right? They're going to Brooklyn <laughs> to play in that tournament and the, the competition won't be as, uh, as stout as an Auburn was last year when Syracuse played in the Bahamas. So I think every non-conference schedule will always even itself out. But if you're Syracuse and you want a good record and you know you're getting a bunch of 18 and 19-year-old, mainly 18-year-olds, and then just Joe Girard, who's been struggling to stay cons consistent, yeah, make it as easy as possible. Marketability. The marketability are the recruits you just got. Those guys can be marketable. You don't need the 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 teams to be marked. You're telling me that when Syracuse lost to uh, to Colgate and then Georgetown beat them and then went what oh and nineteen in conference play, you think that Syracuse was worried about marketability? No, they were like, wow, our team sucks. So now I'm agreeing with Ethan in terms of this year, but I always yeah. believe that non-conference it always evens itself out. So continue to schedule easy opponents. But in my opinion, it, is any opponent that easy? Colgate put up 100 on a bunch of veterans last year. So give me Ethan's side just because it's a bunch of 18-year-olds. Yeah, Cam, you know, I, I, I looked at the articles that were written by both guys, and I, I kind of condensed their points down there into the question that I proposed and I have to say that my instinct and that one that I'm sticking with is that I also agree with you Cam which is to agree with uh, Ethan apologies to LG but um, you know I, I do you know at the same time I understand where what Liam was saying and, and he you know he said that the the Ivy Leagues were were very very soft and then Syracuse who immediately he, dropped, Carter, dropped his first Liam, three ACC games who does what? Liam want Syracuse to schedule for a non cover Duke or you can very, you can, you can very, fun. you can very well know. ask him that. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, like a Kansas. Of course, you can try to schedule teams like Auburn. I mean, before the season, I do remember them saying that Syracuse's non-conference schedule was tough. I think that going into the battle for Atlantis, we knew that Auburn was good. We didn't expect them to be two seed in the tournament. Good, you know. Syracuse also got Indiana. That team made the tournament. Villanova, they made the tournament, and you know, Georgetown. You kind of have to schedule them because of the rivalry, even though they weren't on par but I, I think that Syracuse's schedules in the month of January it kind of tanked their season I don't think it was owed to playing soft Ivy League teams it's that they went through most of the back half of December without playing very much basketball at all they played two games between December 12th and New Year's Day that was against Brown and Cornell who they beat very very handily but that doesn't really factor into my opinion of what they should do for next year I think that Obviously, Syracuse men's basketball goes into every season with the expectation that they contend for the tournament. 
that's just the pedigree they've developed over decades of doing so. But I do think that this year with this recruiting class and the way that it's structured and the way that Jim Beheim has openly said that he expects at least one or possibly multiple freshmen to start, that this team, unless these freshmen vastly exceed expectations, even when we expect them to be good players, that Syracuse is probably not making the tournament this year anyway. So I think that a softer non-conference schedule would benefit the team because you're letting the guys play. You're letting them gain confidence, which I think is a pretty uh, underestimated thing you can let young players do. You can put more of them in to try to spread playing time if you have bigger leads. That certainly feels a lot better for them than if you're behind by 40. And that's an important thing to consider when you have a really talented freshman class that also has six players who all really want to play. I think the only guy who probably won't play and knows it is Peter Carey. I think that he's a little buried there behind Jesse Edwards and uh, Hema. Uh, but I think the other five guys from Chris Bunch to Judah Mintz to Kadir Copeland, they could all see playing time just depending on, you know, what breaks where, you know, basically, you know, if, if Joe Girard hurts himself or, you know, if one guy gets hot or something, you know, we could see a lineup change pretty regularly, which would be out of the ordinary for Jim Beheim, who trotted out basically the same five guys every single game last year until Edwards broke his, uh, his hand or wrist or whatever it was. Um, so th those are the main points for me, Cam. You know, I have to think that, that an easier non-conference schedule, at least at the beginning, because you're right, they probably will play some teams that you know, we expect to be pretty good. They end up a little worse. We expect some teams to be kind of mid and they end up actually looking not too bad. So I think at the end, it all evens out. You play a pretty wide array of teams in the ACC anyway. So I think that a, a soft start against teams like Oakland, like a Colgate team that surprised us last year, things like that, that's going to help the uh, these freshmen more than, than hurt them. So that's my stance there. Of course, I'm not trying to not trying to, uh, you know, throw lighter fluid on the little the little article jabs that we had back and forth between those two guys. But that's the opinion I've got, Cam. And I think we're in agreement with that one. So with that said, let's move smoothly onward to our final topic of the day. Number five. All right. Topic number five is going to wrap us up on this Fizz five today. And we're going back to football, Cam. Recently, the betting lines for the season just came out for pretty much FBS teams across the board, but Syracuse is obviously included in there. The win totals for this team, better than last year, but still not all that bright. Cuse football tabbed with an over-under win total of four and a half, according to Point Bet and Bet Online. Meanwhile, Caesars Sportsbook has it as at four flat. So, Cam, are you taking the over or the under four and a half wins for Syracuse football and why? Now, I'm no betting man, but Syracuse is starting the season five and oh. Oh, so my going goodness. Over. I'm going over. You think they're Syrac beating Louisville and Malik Cunningham? Syracuse will beat Louisville at home only because they're at home. They'll thrash UConn because I could thrash UConn with my eyes closed. Purdue, I think that it's at home will be a benefit for the Orange. I, I, feel, I have a feeling that'll be a low scoring game. I don't know why have not looked into the intricacies of the Boilermakers or even the orange uh, in that matter, Virginia, the fact that Syracuse has 
uh, their quarterbacks coach and offensive coordinator from a year ago. I think that just changes the dynamic of that game. And it's in central New York. That's a win. Wagner. <laughs> okay. That's a win. That's like an <laughs> Albany from, from a season ago. Either way, if Syracuse is to make a bowl game, this team has to go, in my opinion, at least four and one entering the bye week. Because then you come out of the bye and you face NC State, Clemson, Notre Dame, Pittsburgh, Florida State, Wake Forest, Boston College. That's a tough, tough slate. To to think that your only non-conference game after that is Notre Dame, that's really, really tough. And I could see Syracuse winning only two of those. So in order to make a bowl game, Syracuse, and I know that's not the question, but that's what people really care about. In order to make a bowl game, Syracuse, in my opinion, has to start the season four and one. I have them starting five and oh, which as a byproduct makes them over four and a half wins. So I'm no betting man. Don't do not catch me putting money on this. But if I was a betting man, I would put five cents on over four and a half wins. That's high rolling right there. That is, you know, that is, I, I like to risk it if I was. I guess that's if, a, if I was a betting man. <laughs> that's, that's a rich bet. Cam's throwing in his pot with what he found at his washing machine yesterday. Um, I, I, I'll agree with you, Cam. I would also take the over here. Not by much. I actually think Syracuse is about to go six and six. It's bowl. It's a bowl game. I, I, think, I think they at the very least make a bowl. Of course, I can't say whether they're going to win or lose because I don't know what bowl it's going to be or who they play. But I have them winning six games, and I hope I remember this for when we do our crystal ball uh, prediction stuff in the fall. I think I, I probably will, but just looking at the schedule, I, the one game I disagree with you on in the first four games is Louisville. I do think they're going to lose that. I just – they can't deal with – for whatever reason, in, even when the Cardinals have really bad teams, they just scorch SU for whatever reason. I mean, it's Malik Cunningham again. Even when UL is bad, they've won seven of the last eight against Syracuse, and all of those wins have come by – at least three touchdowns. They just cooked them. I, it's inexplicable, but I would I would take that trend, and I think they're going to go zero and one in the first game in the newly renamed JMA Wireless Dome. But I think they they go four and one after that. I think they beat UConn and Wagner easily. Purdue and Virginia, if they were road games, would probably be losses. But Purdue is a giant killer in the Big Ten that plays down to competition, and they have to come to a very loud place that they really don't go very often. You know, I, I kind of take the discomfort factor there. Um, of course, I, that, that does kind of sound like a fan. It's not very scientific, but um, I, I do think that Syracuse will beat Purdue. And then Virginia, I, I agree that the dynamic has kind of changed there. I mean, SU kind of pillaged their coaching staff. And I think that the, the quote unquote insider knowledge that Robert and I and Jason Beck could give them is pretty overrated. But I am a believer in, in Anaya's offense. And I think that that's going to be one of the bigger stories of the season that, that lets Syracuse kind of finally break the chains on its offense and start to do some things it couldn't do last year. That'll make all the difference. Um, so I think Virginia's a win. Wagner's a win. And then th this is kind of an odd schedule because there's going to be some pressure on Dino Babers and his team early on to, to do some damage in the first half. I'm sure they're going to feel a little bit of that pressure, because they know what's coming basically starting in, in mid-October after the bye week, NC State, Clemson, Notre Dame. I, I don't think they're not close to winning any of those three games. I don't think unless, you know, something pretty inexplicable happens, you know, injury wise, the, the last four games of the season, I could see them beating Florida state. And I also think they'll win at Boston college. 
with a bowl game on the line. I mean, Syracuse could go into that Boston College game at five and six with how tough the schedule was. Even Pittsburgh minus Kenny Pickett and Jordan Addison, you know, still kind of a tough team. I wouldn't expect Syracuse to go down to Heinz Field and beat them. So, Carter, I'll I'll leave you with this. I know this is my last point. I know you want to you, – you'll keep going. I just – this is my last point because I don't want people to forget your Louisville point about yeah. the, you know, seven of the last eight times. So, the last three times that Syracuse has lost to Louisville and it's the last three times these, these two teams have played, all in Louisville. Right, the last time mm. these two teams played in the dome was that 2018 season, the magical season for the Orange, and Syracuse blew them out of the water. The year before that, Louisville blew Syracuse out of the water at Louisville. So I'm taking the home factor into effect. So, and I agree with you. I, I don't think I think that Syracuse at Pittsburgh is a really really tough matchup. I don't care who you chalk up. I think SU on the road is just in general. I, I don't really trust Syracuse that much on the road as much as I trust them at home. Definitely not. And you have to remember that Wake Forest is a pretty good team now. It's not like it used to be. So I, I think that for Syracuse this season, you're as a fan, you're going to watch them get off to a pretty good start and then try to hang on for a bowl. That, that's going to be the way it is. I think, you know, it'll be similar to last year, except we didn't really expect them to do anything last year. They got off to a good start and then tried to scratch out a bowl and ultimately came up a game short. I think this year you got, better players, a little more confidence. You got a really hot coordinator on the offensive side. I like their chances for six and six. I have to say it, you know, I'm not a better either. You know, I'm not about to take the change out of my car cup holders and, and put them on the orange, but, <laughs> but I, I, I'll be confident in this. And, and you can keep me to that word. If you're a listener, if you read our crystal ball stuff in the fall, I, I'm pretty sure unless something crazy happens that I'll come up with the same exact result, because I think, if you're honest with yourself, if you're an SU fan who pays attention, if you look at the schedule, it's it's pretty easy to come to the same conclusions that that Cam and I have uh, today. But that's all we've got for this Fizz Five. This has been Carter Bainbridge along with Cam Isaire. You can listen to Fizz Five next week. Of course, it'll be another rotation of our talented Fizz writers. Cam and I will be back on this show in about three weeks' time, during which we'll be off. Uh, doing some summer baseball during our summer job. So we'll be having fun doing that. And, and we'll be excited to get back on Fizz 5 when the time comes. But for now, Carter Bainbridge again, along with Cam Azair, and we'll see you next time. And that's your Fizz 5. Listen next week. Subscribe, rate, and review. This has been an Orange Fizz production. <laughs>